0: Welcome to On Opinion, the Paliya Podcast. I'm Turi Bunti. We live in opinionated times. Culture wars, identity politics, polarisation. Everyone has an opinion. But do we know where our opinions come from? Do we know why we think what we think? In each episode, I'll talk to experts across all disciplines to help us understand the nature of opinion, how we form ideas, why we argue, and what that means for society. We are thrilled to be talking to Sarah Rose Kavanagh. Sarah Rose Kavanagh is a psychologist, a writer, a speaker, a professor, and associate director of the beautifully named Damour Center for Teaching Excellence at Assumption University in Massachusetts. Sarah's work focuses on emotion, what it is, and how we regulate it to improve quality of life across everything from education to democracy. Sarah, it's fabulous to have you with us on the Parlia podcast.
1: Oh, thank you so much for this opportunity. It's great to be here.
0: It's great to talk to you. Sarah, we are here to talk about your latest book, Hive Mind, The New Science of Tribalism in Our Divided World, an ominous Frightening, but also slightly optimistic. title. We'll link to it in the podcast notes. But just as a as a kickoff, why this book, and then and what is a hive mind?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I it's interesting because the book I think books often do this, but it took on its own shape. <laughs> and so, why the book changed over time. And when I first started writing the proposal, it was before the US 2016 election, and I was really wanted it to be just a tour through some of my favorite research in psychology and in social neuroscience, Um, some of the things that I saw in the classroom and live in my students the most. And then I was interviewing a lot of experts for the book, psychologists, but also historians and people in media. And it really changed shape over time because the going-ons in the world was uh, dominating everyone's thinking, and so it took a darker tone, and the focus on polarization, which um, is a little bit less of a theme than the title suggests, uh, it's a little bit more still about the social neuroscience bits, um, just became more and more of a focus, and so that's kind of the story of why and how the book. the. The concept of a hive mind is somewhat more of a cultural or philosophical one than it is a scientific one, although I think there's a lot of science uh, underlying it, but it refers to the human tendency to share consensus thoughts, emotions, and opinions, and whereby when we experience the world together, it can nudge us into almost a sort of collective state of consciousness. We don't really flock like birds or swarm like ants, but I think that we do synchronize together through processes of emotional contagion and social conformity, and this helps us produce shared experiences of the world.
0: That's a very beautiful description. Throughout your book, you also describe things that you are not doing. Can I ask you whether the hive mind (laughs) is very much not the collective unconscious of Jung?
1: Right. Um, so I, I don't think about the hive mind as sort of a mystical phenomenon. Uh, I think that we can understand it by looking at neuroscience and how people think about the world and experience the world. And it's really more of a product of our psychology and our neuroscience than than um, kind of a mystical phenomenon, I think.
0: That's what I so enjoyed about your book. Before we get into the the detail of how we function as a hive, as a hive mind, of how, how the neuroscience and the psychology plays into that. There's, a, there's an implicit thought in this idea of a hive, which is this mm-hmm. notion of a superorganism. You talked about ants, um, but here you're talking about bees, all of whom with particular functions, all of whom exist within a collective. Mm-hmm. Can we think of Homo sapiens as a superorganism too?
1: It's an interesting question Um, and I think both yes and no. I think that, you know, this idea of us as a superorganism has been with us for a long time Uh, there's a really old sociologist emily durkheim who said that we should actually be called homo duplex because of our ability to experience the world both as individuals but also as a collective and and there's certain ways that we do sync up and uh especially in contexts that are dark and if we're imbibing substances and singing together and chanting together where people do seem their consciousness gets a little slippery and we do can seem to um kind of conglomerate into this collective shared consciousness in the moment uh, but that's pretty rare, and I think more when I'm talking about hive mind and when we think about human beings as very collective, it's more to do with um, consensus thoughts and opinions um, and synchrony than it is with our actual consciousness, you know, melding and us being a super organism.
0: You discuss Jonathan Haidt, the author mm-hmm. of *The Righteous Mind* and
1: sort of
0: father of, of moral foundations theory, in the book, who comes at this particular political problem with a particular answer, again, talking about this idea of the superorganism, which is that Democrats need Republicans and Republicans need, de- need Democrats <laughs> because they temper their most extreme tendencies. Um, mm-hmm. That's a little bit what I'm wondering here is is whether we can think of homo sapiens as actually having evolved as a group. The evolution is predicated on the notion of the evolution of the individual. Sort of select, mm-hmm. selection of the individual of the fittest as an individual level, but more and more there's been this idea that group evolution would work as well. That there is a sort of a a selection around units of people. Is that mm-hmm. does that feed into your thinking?
1: Well, I am a little cautious <laughs> about wading into uh, group evolution because I know I you know I interviewed an evolutionary biologist for the book and i've done some reading in evolution of evolutionary theory and i know that as an enormously controversial <laughs> topic uh that okay. people who deeply understand evolution and spent their careers studying it get in these like very heated battles about whether uh, group evolution is a thing or not and as a psychologist <laughs> i um i feel like i, I might be kind of Tromping around with big boots, uh, trying to answer <laughs> okay. that question, but um, i do I do appreciate a lot of hate 's work on um, on moral psychology and on uh, some of these issues of polarization and you know I do think I know we 're not going to talk a lot today about uh, social media, but taking our ultra sociality online I think has led to some group polarization and this tendency for people with different viewpoints, um, to kind of polarize on opposite ends of the spectrum. And um, and I, I share some alarm at the degree of polarization that has occurred. Um, and so I will. I would definitely agree with all of that, and agree that there are group dynamics, and that there's a lot of group psychology that uh, we need to understand in order to understand our current polarized moment. Um, I don't know if we need the concept of group evolution to to get there. I think we could stay just in psychology and and make some interesting conclusions.
0: That makes lots of sense and great answer, Sarah. I'd love to come back to this idea that you nodded to, Emile Durkheim. Um, one of the very earliest sociologists describes us humans as homo duplex. How can we both be I and we, we Mm -hmm. and I, that homo duplex idea?
1: So I think that the I probably doesn't need as much unpacking as the we, but we certainly all have this appreciation. I think this is our, our mode of thinking about the world. We tend to think that about ourselves as I's, as individuals, as um, I'm Sarah, right? <laughs> these are my motivations. These are, and this is how I differ from people around me, and and I think we think of ourselves as individuals. Uh, and certainly, you know, um, from the states in the in America, we love to think about ourselves as individuals. Right. Um, But we also have this shared way of experiencing the world. And I think that we don't spend enough time thinking about and talking about and understanding how our social others shape our experience of the world. And I love this idea of synchrony and I dig into it in the book. And synchrony can occur at the level of facial expressions. So we do tend to mirror each other's facial expressions uh, each other's mannerisms, we tend to echo those. Uh, when we walk together, we tend to fall in step with each other, and and we structure parts of our society in ways that maximize this synchrony. Right? Uh, we love to go to sporting events and uh, and cheer together. Um, music is a way that uh, nudges our we mode. When we sing together, when we go to concerts, uh, things like that. Um, there is a 1950s, I think, uh, era book about um, marching in, in, as a soldier and uh, this elation that occurs when we line up our movements and our sounds with each other. And, and we also do this at the level of emotion. And I think, you know, this is easy to see in crowd settings or at protests when emotions t- seem to spread from one person to another. In the book, I quote Barbara Fredrickson, who's a psychologist, and she likes to say that it isn't that even that my emotions affect your emotions, but rather we share emotions, that the emotional states are recreated in different bodies and unite us and kind of synchronize us. There's, there's also some really lovely neuroimaging work by Talia Wheatley and others showing that as we spend time and uh, experiences together with certain people, with friends, our brain activity tends to line up. We experience the world in similar ways. And so in all of these kind of physical ways in the moment, we synchronize and we become one with our social others. That's
0: it's a very beautiful idea in many ways, though clearly there may be some slightly darker elements to it too, which mm-hmm. we'll come to in a bit. Is this just empathy? Is it something else? It's not just mirroring, is it? it? Is is there an element of contagion?
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and that is actually the word that people use, <laughs> uh, at least the people in the emotion science realm, uh, talk about emotional contagion. And there's even some work in it's so neat that I have trouble believing it's true and so every every six months I check the research literature literature to see if someone has disconfirmed it um but there's some really compelling research on emotional contagion that um measures uh how emotional contagion may spread through the air through the transmission of chemo signals and so some really interesting work where they collect sweat pads uh from men because they're stinkier (laughs) literally thank you and (laughs) and um while they're in states of fear or disgust and then they have women because they're more sensitive uh and they smell the sweat pads um and and they see evidence of the recapitulation of that emotional state of the sweat pads uh even though these women don't meet these men um they're separate participants collected data on separate days uh, and but you can see in their facial expressions and in some of their eye scanning behavior for instance uh recapitulations of the men's emotional state and so again i need so let me mm
0: -hmm. let me just jump in and repeat that back to you to make sure I've understood Mm -hmm. men subjected to things which might disgust them or frighten them or give them anxiety Mm um uh, their sweat is collected in sweat pads separately women who are more sensitive to smell unfortunately for women um Mm -hmm. are, are subjected to these to these sweat pads what's interesting is not so much that they are able to recognize the emotion that created that sweat, but that they mm-hmm. actually have that emotion themselves. So, in the analysis of their facial features, they are replicating the disgust or fear or anxiety that exactly. prompted the sweat that they're smelling. That's that's contagion. That is not yeah. empathy.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's wild. And the they've replicated this. This finding numerous times uh, using different scenarios. So sometimes the men, uh, the emotional states are evoked while they're watching videos um, that make them feel fear or disgust. But they've even done studies where they have men do things um, like extreme sporting, <laughs> like uh, walking on a high wire things like that uh, to, to make sure that they're really feeling fearful and that they're really creating an emotional experience that is authentic and that makes sense outside of the lab laboratory as well
0: you call these chemo signals is that right Mm-hmm. do they that there was a the science of pheromones which was all the way through my childhood and a, a little dubious does it smack a little bit of that is this why you have to check the research every six yes. months to make sure
1: <laughs> exactly exactly and and then they and there is um the other reason i check to be sure is um well two reasons one As you probably are aware, a lot of psychology research has kind of crashed and burned recently um, because of its trouble replicating, and it looks like it was just statistical error and things like that. But secondly, they don't really, if you read the papers, they don't propose a convincing biological mechanism, right? They say, um, we know that pheromones exist in other species and that they affect behavior. Um, but human beings, you know, lack the same sensory organs that some of these other animals have that pick up on these pheromones. And they say, presumably, you know, this is something that's transmitted. It's a chemical that's transmitted in the sweat. But, you know, chemo signals is just a, a very broad term for the idea that there's something being signaled by chemicals. <laughs> and um, so I would like to see more replications and then also a convincing biological mechanism, an explanation for what exactly is being transmitted and how the receivers are, are decoding that information.
0: A lot of questions still, but broadly, what you're articulating is a world in which emotion is contagious, can transfer and be felt not in an empathetic way, but actually in a sort of subjective, personal way. Um, and that we experience things in sync, synchrony, you call it, that, mm-hmm. that the, the possibly old wives tale, um, but which you refer to in the book about w- women in groups, eventually sinking their menstruation, for example, you think the same thing is possible to be done emotionally.
1: Possibly <laughs> I you know, as a psychologist they we're trained to be skeptical of everything um and to never state things <laughs> in definitives
0: but it's interesting enough for you to mm-hmm. for you to for you to build the beginnings of a thesis for your book around it, which is that there is yes. this thing as a hive mind not just as a metaphor but actually as something that could potentially be um, evidenced so that's the a little bit of the science, and there's lots more in your book. But let's come to another concept that you bring up and have brought up actually as we've been speaking, this notion of reality consensus. Because mm-hmm. we've spoken here about the contagion of emotion, but what we you also look at is how social and how socially constructed our understanding of what the world around us is.
1: Yes. And here's here's where things get scary for me. <laughs> um, because Well, to take a step back, I guess, from the scariness, I think that it's always been true that we have this consensus sense of reality that because we are so ultra social and because we have culture, right? Uh, and we have cultural transmission of knowledge that you know, were handed by our social others, by our parents, by our teachers, by our news media, We're handed these ideas about how the world works, how the world's constructed, uh, what is real, what is important. And we rely upon that kind of web, right? And I think that we have always... Done that. Um, but I think that there used to be more consensus to the consensus reality. And there are a lot of scholars, you know, this isn't a work that I focus on in my research. Uh, and there are a lot of remarkable people who do, but they've been kind of sounding the alarm for some time um, about conspiracy theories, uh, gaining steam about people starting to question really basic elements of consensus reality. And I think, you know, a a really easy example to use is the whole idea that the world might be flat, (laughs) uh, that we didn't land on the moon. Um, You know, my brother was uh, dating someone and her daughter was 11 and she really believed that we didn't land on the moon. Uh, And she had all these YouTube video examples to prove it, Um, and I I think that that sort of breakdown in what is real is frightening, and I think that we're seeing that in this um, not just rise of conspiracy theories and rise of the appeal of conspiracy theories, but also um, something Michael Barkin calls um, a paranoia fusion, and that the conspiracy theories are you you know, you used to have conspiracy theories about aliens, about reptoids, about, you know, um, the Illuminati, but now they're all conglomerating into this one big uber conspiracy. And that's, that's some pretty frightening stuff to my mind, if we can't even uh, agree upon basic facts about how the world works.
0: So that's the nasty side, um, which Mm -hmm. you've jumped in, uh, jumped into feet, sort of both feet first. Um, Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 and 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 we will do. Um, to talk to your kind of uber conspiracy theory, this kind of super macro thing, um, one of the very convincing arguments I've heard for that, just as an aside, is actually mm-hmm. that conspiracy theories are n- deeply problematic and deeply complex. You need to come up with a compelling and totalizing answer to everything mm-hmm. that's ever happened, because of course the. One of the fundamental drives around conspiracy theories is a desire for order. So one of, the, one, of the, one of the key pieces here is that almost all conspiracy theories need to lay upon previous ones mm-hmm. to give them the kind of foundations that they need. And it turns out, unfortunately, lots and lots of work has been done this on this. Conspiracy theories on YouTube, for example, almost all of them lead back to Jews. And why? Mm. Because the earliest conspiracy theories in, in history were about the Jews, and so as conspiracy mm-hmm. theories today about QAnon <laughs> or PizzaGate layer on yeah. previous ones around, you know, the third, the second shooter or the moon landings, they end up land, they end up landing on the protocols of the Elders of Zion, and mm-hmm. then all the other stories. So yes, there's there's a there's a rich canon in conspiracy theory here, which may explain why they go so totalizing. But mm-hmm. actually, can I come back to reality consensus or consensus reality mm-hmm. as you as you describe it, because it's obviously true. We all do make up our sort of sense of the world from the people around us. And when that shatters, it's deeply, deeply traumatizing at a psychological level. Um, the person coming out as either a different sexuality or potentially a different gender in a very specific kind of community will feel that as a breach of reality. Somebody coming out of a believing context um, into agnosticism, will, feel, will reality will break for them. Those, that's at an indi- individual level so we do know that we exist in these kind of social norms constructed collectively but what I liked so much about your description of it was the the, the importance of storytelling the, the mm-hmm. value that um, we place in storytelling to build these ideas of reality consensus
1: yes and and I think you already hit on this uh, when you we're talking about the appeal of conspiracy theories being order, and I think that the appeal of storytelling is so powerful because it's one of our basic ways of making sense of the universe, right? Um, and we want to unite facts together to line them up. We like to see cause and effect. We like to see change over time. Stories um, identify important actors. Uh, they have satisfying conclusions, and have we teach our children is so largely through storytelling how we communicate our social norms our morals as a society is through books and movies and television shows uh through fables and it it may be one of the basic units um, psychologically of how we understand the world and i think that because of that that is one of the ways that we build this consensus reality is through the stories that we agree are important that have important messages, uh, and, and that are our understanding of the world.
0: Is there a particular neuropsychology to, to stories themselves?
1: It's an interesting question. Uh, there are certainly people studying storytelling at the level of the brain. Um, you know, it's because they are so complex, they attend stories tend to activate regions throughout the entire brain. Um, you know, the visual parts, activate the visual areas, the emotional parts, the emotional areas, etc. cetera. Um, but it seems to be more of a distributed network than a particular region of the brain.
0: So we build our consensus reality through storytelling. But in your book, you talk about the value of stories in something absolutely fundamental in humans, which is theory of mind the realization that other people have emotions as well. Can you thread this reality consensus storytelling and the fact that we are, in a way, socially constructed, even at an individual level?
1: There's some really great, you know, one of the joys of writing a book like this was that I could read so far outside my field. (laughs) And so I read some really wonderful history books and literature books about about just this uh, phenomenon. And The idea that a lot of how we build our consensus reality is, as we were just saying, the stories that we agree are important. Uh, what we call our collective library, uh, one literature professor called it, and and he points out the fact that we you don't even need to actually have read the story, some of them, or seen a TV show to have access to the meaning of it. And so, if you think about things like Romeo and Juliet, even if you've never you were never assigned Romeo. And Juliet in uh, high school. You know that story, right? <laughs> it, it You are exposed to it just through sort of a cultural osmosis uh, because our culture has decided that's an important story and enough human beings have read it that it enters our collective hive mind. There's also some really interesting historical work looking at the rise of kind of emotional letter-based stories um, and novels and how that may have changed our ability to empathize with people who are different from us and when you read enough when you read a number of stories and you know you're a man and you read stories from a woman's perspective and you know, you're someone from upper class and you read someone from a lower class perspective or you know any social grouping that you can think of and you see on the page and in the story that the person has the same anxieties of you, as you the same experiences you know the same motivations or at least similar uh, it allows for you to Accomplish uh, a really sophisticated, as you say, theory of mind to the understanding that other people have people have minds and motivations, and they may be similar in certain ways and different in other ways, and this is a core thing that we need in order to be empathetic to other people, to not want other people to experience pain, to not want other people to be neglected, um, to want to protect and help other people. And so narrative and storytelling may have gotten us a lot of the way there.
0: I love this idea that somehow storytelling performs a fundamental social Function in mm-hmm. teaching us that other that other people exist. It may also be the other way around that actually the reason that we obsess with stories is that the first story ever told actually prompts theory of mind. This extraordinary mm-hmm. realization that other people have feelings like you do too. <laughs> um, either which way, stories are wonderful. Um, yes. Talking about connection, there are two beautiful ideas in your book, and I'd like you to um, uh, help us understand them a little bit better. The first mm-hmm. is social baseline theory from Jim Cohen, and the other is something that you've gestured to here already, which is neural synchrony. Mm -hmm. But all these things talk to this notion of the self as profoundly connected.
1: Yes. Uh, So social baseline theory is a theory of Jim Cohen's, as you say, and he's one of my favorite people ever. (laughs) And uh, fascinating work, and his body of work really spans a decade or more now. But his really early work, he took people uh, in pairs and brought them into a neuroimaging setting and put one person in an fMRI scanner and uh, threatened them with electric shock. And so he's a really nice guy, uh, but he likes to joke about this part. And um, so just a very small but uncomfortable electric shock on their ankle. And he measured their brain activation patterns when they were alone, when a stranger was holding their hand, or when a spouse was holding their hand. And he finds that, of course, when you're threatened with electric shock, the areas of the brain that are involved in threat perception and pain light up, uh, they activate blood flows to those regions. And that was true, but he found that someone holding your hand reduced the level of threat responding at the level of the brain. And a spouse holding your hand, even more so, and the higher your ratings of marital satisfaction, the stronger the effect. And he's replicated this finding, um, done it with not just spouses, but roommates, dating partners. Um, he's threatened the partner with shock. <laughs> he likes to joke that he threatens everyone with shock at some point. Um, and But what he finds over and over again is that our nervous system reacts less to threat when our social others are present and providing emotional support and this led him to his social baseline theory which argues that um, as we've been talking about throughout our conversation here that the basic unit of the human being is not primarily individual and that we our nervous systems evolved to expect other human beings to be there and not just to expect them to be there, but to rely on them as resources in times of threat. And and an important corollary of that is if you separate human beings from their social others, if their social others are not there under these times of threat, then you're going to have more alarm responding at the level of the brain and he points to this as an explanation for why we see these really strong effects, study after study, um, dependent variable after dependent variable, showing that loneliness um, affects health, almost every measure of health that you can imagine. And he argues that this is the reason because when you perceive that you're alone, your brain reacts more to threat. And if it's doing that, every single time you feel stressed, every time you get bad news, every time uh, something bad happens at work, then over time, that's going to wear down all of your body systems. And so he argues for this this deep need to attend to uh, the social connections in our lives.
0: So just to, to put that back to you, it seemed to me as I read the experiment so blindingly obvious as to not require even an experiment, of course you're going to feel mm-hmm. comforted if somebody you love and loves you is there to hold your hand. But I think the the, the surprise, what I, what, what I understand is the surprise, is the realization that actually it's almost as if the body sees not being with others as a negative, rather mm-hmm. than the body being supported as a bonus. Ah. So
1: actually,
0: is, mm-hmm. is, that, is that right?
1: Yes, yes, and that's uh, the baseline part, yes, but that was just very well articulated. <laughs>
0: Well, just because I didn't understand it to start with. <laughs> so um, if that doesn't talk to the human as connected or potentially mm-hmm. as more than a single self, back to Emile Durkheim's homo duplex, the we, I, don't, I really don't know what is. Um, and it brings us nicely into an idea that you've touched on previously, which is this one of neural synchrony. Can you unpack mm-hmm. that a little bit for us?
1: Yes, so that's work that a lot of different people are doing, and um, some of the work is at the level of fMRI, so looking at blood flow patterns in the brain. Some of it is using EEG, which you put a cap of sensors on the person's scalp and measure their brain waves rather than uh, their brain activation patterns underneath. And what all of the work looks at is the degree to which there is literally synchrony at the level of the brain, the degree to which your brain waves predict my brain waves and vice versa. my favorite study of in this realm is by Talia Wheatley, who I mentioned earlier, and she studies people at Dartmouth, um, which is where she works. She studies people who are part of their uh, MBA program, and because Dartmouth is in such a rural area and people come from all over for the MBA program they tend to form really close social networks with each other. So unlike, you know, something uh, somewhere like New York city, where you may already have an existing social network, if you choose to go to that program, uh, these people tend to come from far away and then there's not a lot to do other than make friends (laughs) where you're at. And so it gives her this really unique setting in which to do her research. And she examines at the level of the brain, how, friends and friends of friends, how similar their brains react uh, to different stimuli. And so specifically, she uses YouTube clips. And uh, she uses YouTube clips that she intentionally designs or chooses to um, be sort of divisive for people to have different reactions to things like humor, you know, and people have very different senses of humor, Uh, political clips, which we know (laughs) people have very different reactions to. And she has these participants watch these YouTube clips while they're in the fMRI scanner, and then she compares their brain activation patterns. But then she also has access to who's friends with whom and and the whole social network. So when she presents this at conferences, uh, she has one of those graphs up that you probably see all over Twitter and things with the little nodes and the lines in between them, you know, like spider webs. (laughs) Mm. Um, And so she knows exactly how many people are connected to how many people. And what she finds is that just using the brain data, she can predict those connections. So she can predict using how people's brains react to these divisive YouTube clips, uh, who is friends with whom, and she can even do it one level out, who is friends of friends. Um, So you may not be friends with the third person out, uh, but your brain reacts similarly to YouTube clips.
0: So help me understand because it I, this is there's a chicken and egg. It's problem a complicated here. one,
1: yeah. <laughs> because
0: because there's some argument which is if you put a whole bunch of people together and limit any other friend, friending, friend, friend groups, and there really isn't there many other people to talk to, it would make sense that um, the people who like who have more Republican tendencies would get together with mm-hmm. each other, and the ones on the more Democratic side would do the same, and there's, there's people with similar sense of humours. You would have thought that they would sort themselves, but it feels mm-hmm. like. Um, Her experiment is not so much that people sort themselves into categories, but actually that they begin to, their identities begin to bleed into each other. How does she prove that?
1: Well, she, that's what she's researching now. (laughs) Um, So the early work, you know, was kind of cross-sectional in nature is what we call it. She just took a look at people's brains and reactions at one point in time. Um, But now what she's doing is longitudinal studies, which will be able to tease out which of those things are at play. Um, My suspicion is, it's probably a little bit of both, Uh, that we're probably attracted to social partners who perceive the world like us, uh, who think about the world like us, who find the same things funny, right? Um, And that that's part of interpersonal attraction. Um, But I would bet, and I don't have the, I don't, I'll have to go look. I don't know that these uh, data are out there yet, but I would bet that there's a little bit of the other effect as well. Uh, That the more you spend time with people, Um, for all the reasons that we know that we talked about already in terms of behavioral synchrony, facial synchrony um, that you spend the same experiences same amount of time with someone over time that we grow more like each other and that we begin to process the world more like each other and i think that we've all felt this on a behavioral level um if you've ever spent an unusual amount of time with one social partner and then found yourself echoing their mannerisms <laughs> in other right. settings like you can almost feel the person in your body it's really almost kind of freakish um and so I don't know, but my suspicion is it's a little bit chicken and a little bit egg.
0: But what's interesting here is you're taking a neuropsychological, she's taking a neuropsychological line on this where many people would take, as you've just touched on, a sort of behavioral psychological line mm-hmm. on this. All the work that you touch on in your book, and we've touched on elsewhere on the balia podcast around political polarization or group psychology, talks precisely to the social dynamics, which would... Have people align much more closely around their ideas and actually radicalize those ideas as they go. So there's mm-hmm. set, there's sort of three things going on here: one, the 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 feature of sorting; two, the neuropsychological bleeding of self between mm-hmm. one entity and another; um, and three, this behavioral psychological element.
1: I I agree, and although I often you know people like brain science, I like brain science. <laughs> um, but I, I think that often, and I see this oftentimes in the popular media, when the popular media reports on neuroscience findings, um, there's this level of like, oh, you can see it in the brain, right? But the brain is how we do behavior <laughs> and it's how we do psychology. And so um, I, I think that the, it isn't really distinct. Uh, it's a mechanism, it's, it's a mechanism, one mechanism by which the behavioral may ef- um, have its effects. Uh, It's not terribly surprising that we see that at the level of the brain because where else would we see it?
0: That kind of makes sense. So Sarah, we've looked in a number of different ways at um, what's wrong with thinking of the self purely in the first person singular rather than in the first person plural. Um, At a scientific level, brain behavior, (laughs) that Mm -hmm. beautiful combination of all of it, we are in a sense therefore we in scientific terms. And there are also I'm minded, lots of non-Western cultures. You talked mm-hmm. about the US obsession with individualism, but there are lots of non-Western cultures that are much more comfortable with this idea of a collective than um, than our Judeo-Christian uh, yeah. post-God uh, West. I'm thinking of um, Islamic culture, which for which the idea of the ummah, the community, mm-hmm. is an absolute foundation stone. Um, and in fact, it turns out it was a, a Muslim uh, Medical scholar who first discovered the idea of contagion, because of course Mm. it made much more sense within the context of a collective to understand humans as a collective. Um, But also, you have it in Confucianism, the idea of harmony in Confucianism, the idea of even the harmonious society in Chinese communism. Um, The West, Europe particularly, has a really tricky history when it comes to this idea of the we of. When we when we move beyond our individualism into a collective, the history of the nineteenth and twentieth century has made us deeply distrustful of that. The brutal nineteenth century um, wars of nationalism bleeding through into the First World War, and then of course the far more whether they're more or less, but the the the, 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 the hideously dangerous wheeze of fascism, national mm-hmm. socialism, um and Stalinism, we're very, very distrustful of the we. Can you help me understand what happens? What happened in those instances when the I, when the first person singular became a first person plural, and why it was so dangerous?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think. Um I'll just say in the beginning here that uh, kind of like the group evolution thing, I'm not uh, a historian and I'm stepping aside my comfort zone a little bit here, but um, in terms of the psychology of I and we and the dangers of we, um, I think that Our tendency toward in-groups is really, really strong, and there are horrifying examples of out-group hostility, many of which you just named. Um, And I think, though, in all of my interviews across different people from very different backgrounds, such as evolutionary biology and neuroscience and and, uh, history, that... Where we need to think is not to completely avoid the we, uh, because it has all of these powers that we talked about. Um, we didn't touch on yet, but there's also quite a lot of evidence that most of happiness may reside more in the we part of us than the I part of us, right. um, and shoring up our collective well-being rather than caring about our individual uh goals and aims and happiness. Um but rather than is to be really careful about how we define in-groups and to be really wary about the restrictiveness and the size of our in-groups um, and that we need to you know an anthropologist that I interviewed uh, Patrick Clark and talked about thresholds of inclusion uh, which was a phrase that I just loved right. and he And he says, who do we include? You know, where's the threshold? Who gets included in our in-group? And so I think this concept of thresholds of inclusion could really help us out here. And I think that where we need to go is not to avoid our collective social cells, but but to make sure that we have really expansive in-groups, right? Uh, and that we are including human beings. <laughs> and this is this is where I get a little naive, probably, but. Um, human beings as our in-group rather than you know this nation or this ethnic group or this religion and we can still identify we can still find joy and uh sources of identity with our religions and our ethnicities and things like that but i think we need to be sure that we also have these more expansive in
0: groups the tension therefore that we're talking about is that on the one hand seeing ourselves as more than the first person singular getting involved in our in groups, understanding that our collective is a critical part of who we are ourselves. It doesn't just make us happier. It actually makes us live better and longer. Mm-hmm. All beautiful things. But of course, as soon as you start identifying a collective of which you are part, it's human nature to identify a collective which is not part of that. Mm-hmm. What's, what's your truth? What's the, how do we get over something that we're seeing all over the world, particularly in the US, but also across Europe, this radicalization of of, of politics, this polarization, how do we thread this needle?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think that, and this is where I might get naive again, <laughs> but, um, you, I see a strong power for you know looping us back to narrative and storytelling, uh, the stories that we tell ourselves about what's possible uh, and about how we should proceed and about how the world works. I think that if we, that we can embrace a more nuanced, complex version of those things, I think that some of the Attributes of collective thinking that have gotten us in a lot of trouble have to do with dichotomous thinking, you know, us versus them, right versus wrong, Um, have to do with uh, cartoonish depictions of our political rivals, right, uh, thinking, and Twitter doesn't help with this. (laughs) Um, you know, really simplistic versions of uh, the arguments and the people who are on the other side of the political spectrum. Uh, So dichotomies, cartoonishness, and then also, you know, and there's a growing body of work in psychology on dehumanization, which is, you know, a term and a topic that's been around for a long time. But there are a number of recent labs studying Rises and dehumanization, and the willingness of people to um, describe their outgroup outgroup members, including political outgroups, as you know beasts or, or insects or you know these things, and all of these, I think, are tendencies that. Make the worst of our collective sides, uh, and that we need to do a better job in the media and a better job in my world of higher education um, and maybe secondary education at nudging people toward greater nuance, rejecting dichotomous thinking, uh, rejecting these cartoonish depictions, and rejecting dehumanization. And um, I think that we've gotten all too willing to engage in these types of behaviors and each one of those contributes one aspect of a slippery slope that can get us in some pretty dark places.
0: Sarah, there are seven very appropriately named lessons from bees at the end of your <laughs> book, um, which talk to some of the solutions that you think might work here. Can I, can I end with just one and ask you to tell mm-hmm. me a little bit how you see fiction, how you see stories playing into this rehumanization of the out group.
1: Yes. So I think that this is one of our most powerful ways of increasing nuance and um, increasing complexity and all of that. And I don't know how to broadly apply it <laughs> at the societal level, but I think that reading the stories of people who uh, are different from you, and again, this it could be, Different from you is any other social group, right? Including uh, politically, and reading the experiences of other people, you know, getting under their skin literally and experiencing the world through their skin, um, understanding the trials and the tribulations um, and the differential types of experiences different people have in the world, uh, I think can be a powerful way to increase nuance and complexity and uh, empathy.
0: I hope your next book is a novel.
1: Oh, me too. My daughter keeps, t- she says that she doesn't count my books because they're not fiction. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Sarah, what a lovely place to end. And um, thank you so much for walking us through all these ideas.
1: Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure.
0: That was On Opinion, the Palia podcast. Check out our show notes if you'd like to dig deeper into this episode's theme and join me at palia.com to explore all the world's opinions. To stay up to date with new episodes or get further insights from our guests, subscribe to On Opinion, the Palia podcast, wherever you listen and follow us on social media at AskPalia. All our links are in the show notes. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate us and leave us a review.
1: Thank you for listening.